I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Today we are in the book of John, and actually we're going to talk about John 13, 1 through 35, even though the lectionary passage is... Um, quite a bit shorter from that. The actual lectionary passage is John thirteen thirty one through 35, so only a few verses. But as you will see if we you go to it to read, you, you've got to have some context for it. So we're heading back to the beginning of the chapter. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Yeah, I, I just, uh, in, in my opinion, it's impossible to do justice to John thirteen thirty one through 35 without a consideration of the fuller context in John's gospel, including the meal and Jesus washing his disciples' feet and the prediction of Judas, Judas' betrayal. All of this mm-hmm. plays into it, I think. I think the complexity, you know, as I'm looking at it, too, is that John... John is really different than our other Gospels. Very much so, yeah. And even to the point of um, the chronology of the meal. (laughs) So, um, you know, according to the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus and his disciples ate their last supper as a Passover meal on Thursday evening of the final week of Jesus' life, and he was crucified the following day Mm -hmm. on Friday. On the other hand, if we read John 13, 1, literally it indicates that Jesus' farewell supper with his disciples took place before the Passover. And in addition, a, a literal reading of John eighteen twenty eight would imply that Jesus was crucified on Thursday, but because it says that the Jews would not enter the praetorium when Jesus was being tried before Pilate in order that they might not be defiled but might eat the Passover. So it implies that the Passover is still to come when mm-hmm. Jesus is being tried before Pilate. Uh, furthermore, John nineteen fourteen says that the day of Jesus' crucifixion was the day of preparation for the Passover, mm-hmm. and that it was the sixth hour, which would have been the time for slaughtering the Passover lambs. So, you mm-hmm. know, we, we have a fundamental problem here between um, the Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, I've related to you that every time I tried to teach this when I was a seminary professor, I got a lot of blank looks on the faces of some of my students because the NIV translates this problem away by saying it was just before the feast of the Passover. In other words, that therefore the the meal that follows was oh, a I Passover see. meal. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really resolve the other the other passages, John eighteen twenty eight and nineteen fourteen. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear that John presents a different chronology. Um, of that of these last events that from the one that we find in, mm-hmm. in the synoptic gospels you know alan as i think about this with you know especially the desperation of of the reformers to have this kind of um this kind of consistency uh and then john is so de- is this is this a real problem in the church that this is different well, I mean, you know, on the surface of things, if you if you if you look at it from the standpoint that John is placing the farewell meal on Wednesday evening and places Jesus crucifixion on Thursday before the Passover meal, while the synoptics place the last supper on Thursday evening as a Passover meal and Jesus crucifixion on Friday, then this leaves us with a different day on which Jesus died, which that's one problem, right? That's a big problem. That's a big problem, I think. That 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 to me Seems unlikely um, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the Gospels 
would differ on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, but on the surface of things, at least, you have that, you know, you have that um, implication. Uh, I think it seems more likely that for whatever reason, the synoptics and John differed on the day of the Passover. Mm. They differed on the day of the Passover, not the day of Jesus' death. And so the synoptic, the synoptic gospels place the Passover meal on Thursday evening and the crucifixion after the Passover meal on Friday. John places the Passover meal on Friday evening and places the crucifixion before the meal on Friday. Mm-hmm. So you still have a problem because, you know, when was the Passover? Was it before or after Jesus' death? The synoptics say it was before. The, the, the John says it was after. But um, I think it makes more sense this way. At least we have Jesus crucified on the same day. <laughs> right, right. Now, many have explored the question whether this difference is due to the fact that John and the synoptics were following conflicting Jewish calendars, and there's been quite a bit of ink spilled on trying to demonstrate that there were actually conflicting Jewish calendars. Mm. But I think what seems clear, what seems perhaps a better explanation is that the synoptics and John both connect Jesus' death with the Passover in different ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The synoptics do so through the Last Supper, where Jesus clearly interprets his death as having sacrificial significance. And John does so by having Jesus die at the time of the Passover sacrifice. And so the, the symbolism is there in the timing. Yeah, okay. Now, the other problem that this has for the church is that it has significant implications for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh Yeah, because no matter what reading one takes of the relative chronology, there's no Last Supper and no command to memorialize it in John's Mm, gospel. Um, Now, for this reason, there has been a long debate about trying to identify sacramental elements in this narrative, identifying, uh, including identifying the foot washing with both baptism and the Lord's Supper. I I believe that Seventh-day Adventists still do this as a a sacrament. So really, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, um, and you know this debate goes back even to early patristic times. Uh, Tertullian, you know, makes reference to this uh, in the early third century. So this has been a long debate, and I think again this shows the extent of the problem that you know the Synoptic Gospels um, portray this final meal of Jesus as being. Uh, um, the inauguration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and there's no such inauguration of a sacrament in John. And so um, um, you can understand why, I mean, early on, beginning fairly early in the process of the theological development of the church, that there was uh, um, sort of an impetus to try to find references Mm -hmm. to to sacraments in in this passage. Now, I will say, even Raymond Brown, who is himself Mm -hmm. a Roman Catholic scholar and wrote a a foundational commentary on John, does not endorse that view. He, He basically says that the simplest explanation is that Jesus is symbolizing that he was about to be humiliated in death. And I think it goes beyond yeah. that, but I think that's I think that's probably uh-huh. the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, <laughs> I guess you could see where where people get get caught up with that idea, yeah. right? Well, I mean, and many scholars of John's gospel see resonances with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the bread of life discourse in John. Yeah, 6, no, 50, I agree with that. Yeah, 6, you could see that, mm-hmm. especially in verses fifty three to fifty eight, where Jesus talks about eating his flesh in right. order to have life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you you could see that mm-hmm. see that in there. But this foot washing, this is unique here. It is. Um, and as I said, I know the Seventh Day Adventists 
tradition does this. Is, is well, and there are other there bigger. are other traditions that do that as well right. as the Catholic tradition. And they do as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of lot of um, even free churches who have a, have a very sort of literal approach to interpreting the Bible believe this is something that they are literally commanded to do yeah, on Monday yeah. Thursday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So moving on. Yeah. So the meal then in John's Gospel. Is, is significant in that it introduces the whole farewell discourse, uh, the long section from John 13 through chapter 17, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. And John's gospel sets the stage for us by telling us that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. So, you know, there's the, the, Jesus is aware of what's going on. There's, a, there's sort of a full awareness of what's going on. And that awareness includes the notice that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Mm. Um, in verse 2. And so because Jesus knew that his hour had come, the gospel, John's gospel tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Mm-hmm. Now there is some room for interpretation here. The phrase telos, to the translated to the end in the new RSV, can be interpreted in terms of time or degree. And the overwhelming majority of English translations follow the, the, the time interpretation of the NRSV uh, mm-hmm. to the end, or some have translated it all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. Only a handful of translations take the approach of degree. Um, the wow. Jerusalem Bible, now he showed how perfect his love was. Now, the New Jerusalem Bible doesn't follow that, however. It goes back to the time interpretation. Huh, interesting. Uh, now he was to show the full extent of his love. That's the New English Bible. But mm-hmm. again, the later edition, the Revised English Bible, interesting, does goes back to the temporal interpretation. And then the New Common English Bible uh, translates it, he loved them fully. Right, you know where I'm going. What does Alan prefer? <laughs> well... I, mean, I do think there are some phrases that can have a dual implication. Yeah, I like that. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, I, obviously he did love, the, love them all the way to the end, right? Right. Which, which points, I think, points us forward to the cross. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he, I, I mean, obviously he also loved them to the uttermost, you know, or to fully. And, and so I, I, think you could, I think you could almost see this as, a, as a having a double entendre. Well, I think he loved them fully kind of implies both. It, something like that to me does. It could. It, it could. It, yeah. You're right. It, it's hard to translate it because yeah. one, one piece of it's going to be left out in the translation. You can't really say right. he loved them to the end and he loved them fully because then you're really taking it right. out of how it's written. Well, oh. it, then it sounds like the Amplified Bible, which is kind of overdoes it. Yeah, th- right, Ex- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's one of those wonderful but, translation tricks. Well, yeah, this one phrase, I tell us, you know, could have either implication and, and maybe it's meant to have some of both. All right, so moving on then. How is this love shown? Well, the way Jesus demonstrated his love was very clearly, I think, portrayed as by washing the disciples' right. feet after the meal. Right. And, you know, it's important to note that uh, foot washing was something either one usually did for oneself or a servant did. Mm-hmm. And at a later time, the, the rabbis would say that not even a male Jewish slave should be asked to wash someone's feet. 
Wow. Uh, this was work that was reserved for Gentile so wow. slaves or women or children. <laughs> wow. And, and of course, interesting. Of course, everyone's walking a lot, and they're mm-hmm. walking in this dusty sand right. and wearing sandals. Right. So right. the feet are gross. I mean, right. Right. <laughs> I don't know how else to say Well, that. when you yeah. combine that with the fact that they are literally reclined at a table in parallel fashion, so they are lying next to one another at, around the table, you know, and their feet are going to be just all around them. So, you know, the, there's going to be a, a desire for some some hygiene there yeah yeah and and so um yeah just simple hygiene would call for foot washing and yet it doesn't happen which is significant because none of the 12 is willing you know i can imagine the foot the foot the wash basin being being there in the in the room and none of the 12 is willing to pick it up and do this (laughs) yeah yeah so it, it is significant, I think, that Jesus is the one who washes the feet. And he says it this way in verses 13 through 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So, you know, really, I, I think what we need to see here is that Jesus as their Lord and teacher was doing for them what none of them would have even considered doing for each other. Um, and, uh, you know, this probably expresses, explains Peter's reluctance to have Jesus wash absolutely. his feet. Absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, Peter's initial question, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I think conveys the cognitive dissonance that he must have, that they must have all felt. Uh, I'm sure they all did. That This is not this, done. No, yeah. this was, this was not done. A, a master, a teacher, you know, a Lord did not wash uh, uh, the feet of disciples or a servant. And so, um, I, I, this is one of the reasons why I think we need to take up the context of John chapter 13 is because I think this narrative provides essential context for the content of John yes. thir- 13, 31 yes. through 35. Now, I don't think that Jesus was literally instructing them to wash one another's feet, contrary to what a lot of people believe and do. But rather, the point was to love one another in humble service and even sacrifice the way he loved them by humbling himself to wash their feet and ultimately by giving him his life for them. And I think, I think, um, you know, those who see in the foot washing as sort of almost a, um, foreshadowing of, of Jesus death. I think that's right. I mean, I think he's, I think he's, um, you know, there's, there's some foreshadowing going on here of, of, of Jesus death. And we'll see this later on. Very good. So now moving on, we have Judas. In, yeah, in and, there. and one more matter must be dealt with in the fact that Jesus predicted his betrayal by one of you. So he doesn't say Judas. He doesn't point him out. No, no, he doesn't. Well, he doesn't point him out to anybody but the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is only right. found in John's right. gospel. I've always found this to be fascinating that yeah, you know, in John's it gospel, is. you know, Peter nudges the disciple whom Jesus loved and, and the disciple whom Jesus loved um, asks Jesus and Jesus, you know, tells him it's the one uh to whom I give the piece of bread that I have dipped right, and, right. and yeah, he gives it to Judas. And so, but I think it's important for us to note that Judas was still there yeah. for the meal. Judas, Judas was still there when Jesus washed the feet yes. of the 12. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, uh, one of the things we need to recognize is that in the context of John's gospel, it was only the disciple whom Jesus loved 
who did not desert Jesus on the cross. All the rest of them deserted him. That's true. And he washed their feet. Yeah, and, that's right. You know, there are some people who, who, will, who will discuss, you know, whether or not Jesus knew that this was going to happen. I think he did. I mean, obviously, he predicts Jesus. He predicts Peter is going to deny right, him right, right after right. right after our passage for today. That's true. So, and he predicts Judas' but betrayal. So, you know, he knows this he knows when he washes things. the feet mm-hmm. of, of all of them. Yeah, yeah, which is to me, I think, highlights again the act of love that 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 it represented. Well, exactly the the act of love and the um, uh, the understanding of of his sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. The, the necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So. Um. Um. So this kind of sets the stage for today. It does indeed. That that brings us. That's sort of all background for our lesson for today. And in verse 31, uh, John's gospel says, when he had gone out, in other words, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the the fact that Judas has gone to betray Jesus made it clear that his hour was truly at hand. And I think that's one thing we should note about this. I think it's also important to note that Jesus speaks of himself as the son of man here, just as he does in the synoptic gospels. And as I've noted before, I believe that this this correlation between John's gospel and the synoptics is significant. Jesus calls himself the son of man quite a bit in John's gospel. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's important. I think That's an important connection with the synoptic tradition, I think. Yeah. And, and so then we move on to this idea of glorification. Yeah. And so Jesus, Jesus speaks of this moment as his glorification. We might wonder how is it how is Judas betrayal the moment of his glorification, but I think he's thinking broader here because this follows the motif that runs through John's gospel. Now John's gospel is notorious for its redundant style. And in fact, there is a textual variant here. You may note that the words I hotheos edoxaste in auto at the beginning of 1332 are printed in single brackets. Uh, that's the phrase, if God is glorified him at the beginning of verse 32. Mm-hmm. It's, it's printed in the Greek New Testament in single brackets. Um, and the R- new RSV does have a footnote indicating that this clause is not found in the best manuscript witnesses to John's gospel. And it is not. It's not found in P66, which is one of the earliest and best manuscripts uh, witnesses to John's gospel. It's not found in Sinaiticus. It's not found in Vaticanus. It's not found in D, in Codex Beza. And so you would almost think that with those four being in agreement, this would almost be, um, um, there, there'd be no way that this would even be considered to be original. But the problem is it's difficult to explain the addition of this clause if it's not original. Hmm. It's easier to explain that this was original, original and either accidentally or intentionally omitted. It's hard to see why anybody would insert it if it was, if it was, not, uh, if it was not originally there. Wow. And, and that's one of the key at least one of the key elements in the method of textual criticism that I was taught, and that is that the the reading which best explains the origin of the others is most likely to be hmm. original. And so even though the the external witnesses, the manuscript witnesses themselves, are very much against it, uh, they decide, even the the latest version of the Greek New Testament, the, the Nestle Alon 28th edition, prints this clause in the text of the Greek New Testament, but it prints it in brackets, and that's meant to indicate, you know, that it seems to be original, but there is significant um, evidence against the originality of this passage. So we are understanding 
potentially that there may have been another another source that we do not have that would have contained this. Is that how I'm to understand it? Or it just I there mean, are other manuscripts that do contain it. I got yeah, it. later manuscripts but do contain it. But your 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 oldest and your most reliable do not. Do not. Yes. And where so it makes you ask the where did it come from right. originally? If it, which if we it do was not, not originally there, okay. how, how did it get added? Because it doesn't make much sense that people would add it. So now, someone's got to go look for that. <laughs> I will say, I will say, I will say that that scribes tend to add things rather than leave yes, them out. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, and and it's interesting. Some of the some of the variant readings I've studied, it's almost comical. You know, if you have two or three different options, some of the manuscripts just put them all together right, in yeah. because they want to throw everything into the sure kitchen sink. Don't, don't they don't want to leave anything out right. yeah right. so uh, it, it's hard to say it's hard to say whether this was original or not but I, I think what's going on here the problem is again with or without the clause in question john's gospel has jesus say in a very roundabout way <laughs> what he's trying to say here it's a very you know it's it's really awkward uh, the way the way the verse is worded and you know you if you're trying to press the literal the literal wording of this this passage um you're going to going to run into trouble here i think because it's just worded in such an awkward way. The point of this passage, I think, is that Jesus' glorification in being lifted up on the cross, as we've seen throughout John's gospel, was the means by which God would be glorified in him. I think that is the point. And since Jesus would glorify God by fulfilling the task that God had given him, both in his ministry and his death, then God would glorify Jesus by restoring him to the glory he had with the Father before the world existed, as he says in his prayer in John 17, mm -hmm, 5. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the point, is, right. is God was going to, Jesus was going to glorify God by being lifted up on the cross, right, and right. as a result, God was going to glorify him by restoring him to the glory he had with the Father right, in the beginning. Right, right. Yeah, and I think um, as I was looking at Calvin, I mean that's how Calvin ultimately mm, read this as yeah. well. But but very hard to get there. I mean well, because you get stuck, kind of get stuck in the in the uh, prose. Well, and and you, you can you can you know you can get bogged down in the details and miss the force for the trees in something like I think this. So, too. Uh, so if I, I, to me, I think it's important to look for the simplest, most straightforward explanation of these kind of difficult sayings in light of the plain usage of the terms in John's Gospel. I don't think you know, for example, uh, George Beasley Murray in his in his commentary on John uh, tries to make a distinction between the fact that you know at one point it says that that. Jesus would be glorified by God is in the aorist tense or the past tense. And then in the next part, he will be glorified in him is in the present in the future tense. I don't know that we should make a big deal out of those details. I think this is just, this is just part of the style of John's gospel and it's a bit redundant. It's a bit awkward and you kind of have to cut to the chase and, and try to try to weed through it and to find it, what is the real text. What, I, what's the real point here? As I think about John's gospel, I always think of it's kind of poetic nature, mm. you know, and that when you deal with, a poetic nature you mm -hmm. deal sometimes with with words that are creating images not necessarily mm. kind of and maybe sure. i'm totally off base but kind of instead of kind of literal no, that that's, that's, that, that's a possibility i mean i i've often thought that it's it's sort of a semitic it's sort of a semitism because okay. you know there's some places in the hebrew bible yeah, where it does true. this kind of thing yeah so I've, okay. I've often thought that perhaps it was the influence of the hebrew bible and, and just that sort of way of thinking on on the authors of john's right yeah. okay so let's move on this next part um 
this reference to uh, the disciples as little children. Yeah. So, I, you know, you know, he, it's interesting that he, he uses this kind of tender form of dress because he's going to tell them, I am with you only a little longer and you will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. And again, you know, I, Jesus kind of has this enigmatic way of speaking really throughout the farewell discourse. And I think we have this here as well. Um, he, he's not telling them straightforwardly, you know, what's going to happen at this point. Uh, he will later on, but at this point he's being rather enigmatic. And, and the reference um, to, as I said to the Jews, refers back to both John chapter 7 right. and John chapter 8. And in both cases, Jesus was dialoguing and perhaps we might say arguing with the Jewish leaders. Um, the crowds were debating Jesus' identity, which indicates the, the right. people were debating Jesus' identity. And some thought, he was he was a good man and maybe even a prophet. Others, you know, were were more negative. But the Jews were questioning him, and both which, of course, again, the Jews refer to the Jewish leaders. And in both instances, Jesus insisted that he was seeking the glory of him who sent me. That's what he says in John mm-hmm. chapter seven eighteen. And that when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you'll realize that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me, which is John eight mm-hmm. twenty eight. Mm-hmm. And and throughout John's gospel, these themes are interwoven. Jesus only says what the Father mm-hmm, says mm-hmm. and only does what the Father does, that he might bring glory to God, and the end result will be Jesus' glorification, which not only refers to his being lifted up on the cross, but also the resurrection and his ascension and restoration to right. the glory he had with the Father in yep, the beginning. Yep. I've which, said this several times, and this is, just, right. this, is a, this is just a common motif in John's gospel. Right, right. Okay. And then finally, how does this... Well, finally, then Jesus draws the lesson from his act of humility in washing their feet after the meal. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is a familiar passage. We, we tend to know this one by heart. Many of us do. But the idea, I think, is that the, that the disciples and all who claim to follow Jesus are to show the same kind of love for one another that he showed not only by washing their feet, but also that he would show by giving up his life for them. And I think that's important to bring in here because the idea that the foot washing and the humility that he shows in the foot washing points forward to his death. I think all of this, as I have loved you, you should love one another. I think that means as I have loved you by humbling myself enough to wash your feet, even when you wouldn't do that for one another. Also, as as I have loved you by giving myself. I mean, technically speaking, he hasn't done it yet, but I think it's it's sort of pointing forward to the fact that he will... Get, love them by giving him his life on the cross right, for them. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of love that will identify them as Jesus' disciples. Now, some have claimed that this kind of love was something unknown, and they'll say agape love was unknown you know, to the world before Jesus introduced it. And, of course, Jesus does call it a new commandment. Right. But I don't think that's quite precise. For one thing, there's always been a recognition of humble, self-sacrificial love, regardless of the precise words used to name it. What is unique or new about the command here to embody this kind of love is that it's defined by Jesus' specific example of humble service, washing their feet, and sacrificing himself not only for his own, but also for the whole human family. And so um, I think that's what makes it a new commandment is that it's filled, you know, because they had the command to love your neighbor as yourself from the days of of Moses, right? And Calvin actually 
makes that same statement. Yeah. He said, this is not new. Yeah, they had yeah. the commandment to love exactly. your neighbor as yourself from yeah. the days of from the days of, so, of, of the, the, exactly. the law of Moses. Exactly. Um, but what makes this new is that Jesus fills it with a new kind of right. um, um, urgency, even a new kind of a, a pattern by the way he had humbly yes. washed their feet and by the way he would give his life for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and that's, um, yeah, and that really sets us often such a, a neat point about John's gospel. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. All right, thanks. Hi, friends, we're back, and we are going to take a look at what the Reformers have to say about this passage. Uh, so, Christy, tell us, tell us what you found. Well, today we're going to look at Calvin, because I really just decided to kind of uh, trace Calvin's pattern of this through his commentaries. So, I'm not looking at anybody else today. Um, and so, it's kind of interesting as to look at it in, in that um, fullness um, because of the many, many themes that come out of this, I, I think um, when you read it on face value, you don't necessarily see all mm. the things that reformers have certain issues on their mind see with it. And right. so I'm just going to kind of give you a taste of these themes um, in Calvin. And I, I will say this, Calvin is um, unfortunately, um, well, I mean, they have this desire to to place to, to kind of analyze each tiny nuance mm-hmm. of stuff. But then he gets caught up in the same thing Alan was telling us about was all of the the, the flowering of language. And so it, it really puts Calvin in some awkward positions. Mm. Um, and instead of kind of looking at it as a whole, as right. he's pulling apart these tiny pieces, it contradicts himself sometimes. And mm. um, so we're just going to do the best we can, I think, though, and see what at least what we kind of think he meant by some of this. So, sure. uh, of course, um, he, he points out that he sees this as one narrative, and uh, that's the whole Reformation thing, right? The collapsing. Well, John has never actually collapsed, and yet in Calvin's mind, it still has to fit in with the narrative. Right. So right. he says that, look, this John is different because the other things have already been reported right. in Matthew and Luke. So this is in addition to what they have it's talked about. It's in addition to yes. what they have right. talked about. Right. Now, he doesn't deal, actually, with the with the chronology situation mm-hmm. here which at all, which kind of surprises me because he does do that when he's looking at the other synoptics. But well, his, his presumption is, you know, his premise is that they have to agree. And so I, that doesn't surprise me that he, he doesn't go there yet. I don't think, I think it was about the, the time of the Enlightenment that yeah. biblical scholars started to really pay more attention to these kind of details, yeah. these kind of potential contradictions. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it, it's not a contradiction, so it's just something he doesn't it, do. By definition, it can't be, right? right it right. can't be a contradiction. Yeah, yeah Because can't there be. are no contradictions right. in the Bible. Right. <laughs> so I think the main theme for him, ultimately, is the fullness of God's love, mm. which I think is where we hit towards the sure, end, as, as we just talked about at the end. Yeah. And so um, John is trying to convey according to Calvin, the uniqueness and the fullness, which is beyond our human conceptions of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it explains both the complicated imagery and the examples of foot washing. So um, all, he, he recognizes his language and he recognizes his foot washing pattern. So it's really similar to some of the things you identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he, he claims this love of God claims us even after death. Mm. And uh, he thinks this is what it's conveying. And so, um, 
this then moves throughout this chapter and he talks about this b- brotherly love and notes that this is from God and must be directed equally to all. And I think he was trying to make sense of the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved mm-hmm. and trying to, right. Yeah, right. that person's elevated above the right. others and trying to suggest that is not actually God's intention for I, us. I saw some comments about that also. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I just, that's just what he's called. I don't think we need to make anything more of that. That's just what, it, that's the way this person is identified in John's gospel. Right. Well, and I think just by um, the treatment of all the disciples together and right. including the ones who, gonna, who are betray him, that that love is, is, is extended to all. Yes. And that's what Calvin wanted yes. us to understand as well. Yeah. And then the love is a new commandment, which I already mentioned that Calvin, like Al- Alan agree that this is not a new thing. Um, but it is because it is, 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 is quote of Calvin. It is laid down in the gospel without any shadows, <laughs> which I thought was kind of flowery language, but um, I, I, you know, I think, I think that was sort of a, a, a common approach to uh, Hebrew Bible uh, in general, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, and it kind of reflects um, the, the, st- the language of Hebrews 1.1. In many and various ways, God revealed himself right. to our ancestors in the past, but now he's revealed himself in, you know, in his right. son. Well, and so the idea is that, that the, the, the Hebrew Bible rep, or the Old Testament represents shadows of which the, the New Testament is the reality. Yeah, and, and that, I, I, I agree. And, and that it was, it, was, it was embedded in the Old Testament laws and that those had been abused. And so now that this, mm. is, this is a love that, uh, for one another that extends to strangers, even those that hate us. So this is. I think that's interesting that that Calvin picked up on that, you know, because, um, um, uh, you know, it doesn't seem obvious using the language, just the literal language of the passage. I, I think you have to take into consideration the gospel as a whole to to get that point that, that this is a love that is not just for other Christians. This right. is a love that is for for everyone. Well, and what even though he takes this apart piece by piece, his mind is working through this broader theology mm-hmm. that he develops and you get that in you get that in here. And I think it's why it's so so thick to dig through. Um and, and of course and Always with reformers, there's always some comment on their current situation, which he's like, look, the shadows like this are, are reflected actually in some of the stuff the papacy is doing. They have extravagant worship practices, and, and, and he's kind of picking on their practice of foot washing, which he claims is just basically a theater, and this is not true love. Mm-hmm. Um, that true love is a genuine expression, and it's not this kind of self-love um, promoted by by action without belief behind it. Sure. So anyway, papacies act quite a bit. Well, by definition, right? By definition. Well, and you know, I mentioned, I, I think it's worth mentioning, I, you know, you mentioned that, that both Luther and Calvin sort of grew up in that tradition and making a break with that may have um, been a more difficult thing emotionally for them than we we could imagine. And so that may be behind right. some of this, you know, they're, they're, Maybe they're trying to justify to themselves some of the emotional, you know, uh, what they're going through, you know, having left that tradition behind in order to be faithful right. to the word of God. You know, it's an, that's always an interesting thing. And, and there was a, <laughs> there's a, there's a book that, 
pops up once in a while. It's um, Eric Erickson's The Young Man Luther. And this this book is a guy who tries to go back and try to dig into what kind of psychological state of mind Luther was in. It was actually kind of disregarded in history circles as saying, we just can't know that as historians. Mm -hmm. So it, it got pushed aside, but it does it does resurface as people try to think what what are the kind of psychological states and of course before psychology and people were writing down all their emotions and responses we don't have that so it became guesswork and and as i said it was kind of discredited but i think those are when we think about the fullness of humanity i think those are questions that come to our mind Mm -hmm. especially when we're thinking um they're coming to our the same thing is, is impacting us. Well, I think it's today. easy for us to throw stones at the reformers for always attacking the Catholic tradition. But in my experience, you know, that kind of thing tends to come from some sort of um, emotional tension that exactly. you know, the person is feeling. Exactly. Well, and, and that they have found this right vision mm-hmm. and then they see that going on and they're but being they're, attacked by they're it. They're very much swimming against the stream, right? And they're having to justify themselves at every, exactly. At every turn. Exactly. You yeah. know, uh, Calvin is watching these, you know, I haven't talked very much about the French wars of religion, but he's watching right. this stuff go on. He's watching his his brethren being, you mm. know, uh, tried for heresy and, and being killed in and war. Killed in war. Yeah. For their and faith. <laughs> exactly. And so there's a lot more going on there than we sometimes see when we look mm-hmm. at just at their, um, just at the writing. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, very good. So another theme that he develops is uh, the nature of Christ. And of course, now, again, I don't think we were thinking about that, but Reformation, they run into all the heresies. So mm-hmm. is Christ fully human or is Christ fully God? So um, this is another question he has. He claims that John is showing us that Christ would naturally have a fear of being human because he was human, fully human. And so facing crucifixion would mm-hmm. have been terrifying. Yes. But and I think Jesus knew enough about that, that he would have been afraid. Yeah. yeah. Despite the fear of death, Christ had the confidence of God's love. Sure. So Calvin believes that John included this to reassure the readers that Jesus, Jesus knew his perf- purpose and was confidence in bringing victory over death. So his confidence in this this space as being God's son. And we talked about, um, talked about that earlier. Um, it did not mean that he did not dread death and its pain. Um, and I think it's, He's really getting into the deeper theology. Well, yeah, and I mean, that comes comes in and play in, in those phrases that I was talking about, that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like there was, this is just he, he, the end of his life and he's going right. to suffer suffer meaninglessly. Right. There's, a, there's a point to all of this. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come from God and was going to God in verse 3. You know, I can see where, where Calvin would want to stress that. Yeah, yeah. And so later in verse 21, he discusses that Christ was troubled in spirit, but claimed this was an inward expression, not outward. So in other words, people aren't necessarily able to perceive right, this. Right. Um, but, but the narrator is telling us Yes, this. Yeah. and what I loved here is that Calvin uses to say that um, as Christ was moved and deeply troubled by the action of Judas, um, and that we should be deeply troubled by the monsters which overturn the sacred order of God and of his church. So <laughs> he's, he's, he's kind of using, using look, he's going to be really troubled by this human relationship this that had fallen apart 
um, mm-hmm. and that we too should be troubled by this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then finally in this section I have that he elaborates on now the Son of Man is glorified, where he claims that this is here used to strengthen the disciples. That, Again, I, I find that interesting. That's, that's interesting that, that Jesus says this to encourage them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it is inconceivable to see Christ crucified, and you know, as, as for them, Calvin yeah. explained, for them, and uh, yes, and for me too, you know, yeah, really. Right. And yet, by this, Jesus shows that this heinous death will bring him to glory and honor. So, um, Calvin sees this as necessary to give the disciples strength and also to remind them of the power of God working in them. Yeah. I thought that was that that was really I think a really neat pastoral point that that Calvin brought in here. You know that that mm-hmm. um, Jesus is giving them confidence in the face of his death, but he's also giving them confidence in the face of what they're going to be, be exactly, doing, be dealing exactly. With. Yeah. And then he references God is glor- glor- God is glorified in Him, and then this all looks to the emphasis and idea that God restores all things, that in the most horrible death, that God's goodness ultimately comes through mm, yeah so nature of christ one yeah. of the pieces there and, right. and you know i got thinking about this in comparison to like mark's gospel where you know you you leave with that kind of sense of what well, is god is he really is he really divine mm-hmm. and i think he's trying to, to emphasize my my take on it is calvin's trying to make sure we understand yes Jesus is fully human and fully God. Well, and, you know, you see this confidence, this expression of Jesus' confidence in God's purpose. Uh, this is another motif in John's gospel. Yes, yes. We've seen this before, and, and it really, right. part of this glorification th- motif in John's gospel is is Jesus' confidence in God's purpose, regardless yeah. of what it's going to cost him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, the next one is huge. <laughs> and I say that with a sigh because there's just a lot of stuff going on here in Calvin. But it's all about this discussion of evil. Um, and further, more than that, the whole situation about election. Mm-hmm. And um, how indeed are we predestined to evil? And um, this gets so, there's so much in here that it's actually really hard to dig through. And I would tell you that I see in this Calvin working through his own theology and it contradicts himself. Mm-hmm. He just plain contradicts himself. Calvin's struggling with his he own understanding struggling of predestination. And, and yeah. so, you know, as I'm looking at people who become the Calvinists later on and they say, Calvin said this, they are missing out Calvin trying to work through exactly what this means. And I, I, in the end, I didn't feel confident. So, but... I, it, I, I do I do think he does have a lot of his um, kind of uh, election ideas that are put forth in these commentaries. Well, and I think it's important to note that we're, we're mm-hmm. talking about this in connection with Judas. Yes, yes, good point. We are talking about this in connection with Judas. However, he will he will jump off of that and then make it more mm, general, a broader, mm-hmm. broader. And point, I think yeah. that's part of the challenge, though, because then it's like, well, what do I do with Judas? Mm-hmm. How do you make sense of Judas? Um, um, what do we do with him? Well, Calvin recognizes that Judas has to abandon the disciples in order to fulfill scripture. So he goes out into the night. Right. Yeah. But this does not at all mean that he is good. And Calvin will say, uh, will say he is of the reprobate. Mm. So 
It's not kind of like that gospel of Judas idea where Judas is really the one who's doing is loves beloved because he's doing what he has to do. Right. No, he doesn't. He never. He never. He never acknowledges that as being a good thing. This is mm-hmm. always evil. Yeah, and evil manifested even if it had to happen. And that, but that in itself causes problems. Um, yeah, and it seems with, like it, with his overall theology of grace, right? Right, and it, <laughs> it, and it seems like this could be black and white argument for Calvin, right? Cal- Judas is bad. Judas has well, fallen he's into evil. With Satan. He's filled he with betrays Satan. Christ, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and and then there's those who are elect that follow. But um, he, uh, it's it's more nuanced than that. And I think that's that's the question. Um, so, as I, I actually had much more in here, and I decided to just give you a few things that to stick on. One one of the sticking points was how Jesus chose. Judas as a disciple, right? If he knew he was a reprobate, right? Yeah. Um, and this, so, how can he be chosen in that sense right. and yet reprobate right. in another sense? And <laughs> and he did make the point that Alan did. He was still there for the foot washing. Mm-hmm. He was still there at the meal. And earlier on in this, there is hope that Judas might actually be saved. So what a strange. I mean, that he might mm-hmm. change his mind. That he might be good in him. And yet, at the same time. Um, he has to do it. So it's a strange space. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem seems to be that if Jesus knew Judas, that he would not have chosen him for this role. So how does he choose someone who's actually evil? And honestly, Calvin doesn't really answer the question. There are a couple of options that I saw offered. That Jesus ha- Judas had to respond in faith to his election, and he did not. So, <laughs> which we have seen that in Calvin before, that, that the election's there, but we have that some freedom to choose that mm-hmm. and and instead of that determinism model that becomes comes embedded into the kind of calvinist um ideology um two that judas is a part of god's sovereignty and therefore necessary for jesus's death and what is significant is he always maintains that this act is evil in this pure sense, mm-hmm. following that medieval imagery, right. you know, right. <laughs> Jesus right. is at the depth of hell. Or, or three, that God gave Judas over to Satan that he might fulfill his role. Not um, that, and and not that it, Satan fully enters him, but only the power of Satan. So he doesn't become Satan. Yeah, um, it says Satan had put it into his mind to right, do this thing. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and four, that Judas chose to fulfill his role. Um as Calvin says, Judas, Judas had already ruined himself by his own fault. Mm, yeah. You know, I think about Peter and, you know, Peter's denial and his restoration. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me to be consistent with that theology of grace, I have to believe that if Judas had not hanged himself and if he had come back to Jesus and repented, yeah. that he would have been restored in a similar way. And 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 Calvin... Calvin goes there, right? Yeah. Calvin goes there, which is interesting at times. But as I said, it's not consistent. Right. I can't say that he has one consistent. He has a hard time it. reconciling how he sees this act as an act of ultimate evil. Right. With the possibility of forgiveness. Yes, yes. Yeah. But he actually goes into some of that, like you described there, but he didn't. And therefore, mm-hmm. um, so... Uh, it's very interesting stuff, and um, you know, if if you're like, I want to dig through this. If this is in Calvin's commentary, and, I, you know, to yeah. me, it, to me, it gets it gets kind of scary because you know, I think people, I think people have a little bit in general have a little bit of a of an ambiguous 
ambiguous feeling about Judas because, you know, we, we are all perceive that we betray Christ in our own lives mm-hmm. in many ways. And so if, you know, where's the line where you, you betray Christ and you can still be forgiven right. or you cross the line and you can't be forgiven. And, and I think that's the problem with all this, this whole line of thinking is, is, you know, that it right. creates, it creates some right. fear in people's minds. Yeah, it does. It does. But I do think, and even in Calvin is there is just always this space for forgiveness, mm-hmm. but some will not ever take it. Yeah. And, and you and, have to go there. Yeah. Yeah. You have to go there. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, mm. so there's more, there's, um, a, another theme on servanthood and foot washing. Um, and, um, he's emphasizing the way, uh, the ways of God, that the ways of gods are not defined by human ways. And so, you know, that Jesus would wash their feet is beneath his role as leader. And yet this is exactly what God is conveying. Mm. And much of the stuff Alan talked about, Calvin actually is concurring with, um, it is beyond servitude as it has to do with God's mystery and the human flipping of uh, and concepts of leadership. So, you know, the idea of that a leader would never be mm-hmm. washing someone's feet. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an example of how we are to obey God, even if we question what we're doing. Um, and uh, as I said, we Peter responds, saying it's not fit for Jesus. But Calvin explains that this is the way in which God is teaching us to obey to give ourselves fully to the commandments. And quote, um, this is um, verse two. We are, we are taught by these words that we ought simply to obey Christ, even though we should not perceive the reason why he wishes this or that thing to be done. <laughs> yeah. And Calvin uses this to show that a true head of the household determines what is to be done, and so it is here. And um, Jesus is acting as the head of the household yeah, with his yeah, disciples. Yeah, yeah. and I, mm-hmm. I, there's... Um, there's a whole bunch about the head of the house, the household concepts become really big in the, in the mm-hmm. Reformation. Um, there was a whole bunch of redefining the family, redefining the unit in which people learn. And I've talked about that before. And so this, that this imagery comes in sure. here again, I think really f- reflects the concerns of the time um, and, and how a household would work. So uh, Jesus sets the example for the head of a household as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then a few other, uh, one of the other ones I think I really wanted to point out was um, that Calvin is looking at this passage as an example of the foot washing, as an example of sanctification, which is really interesting. Mm, yeah, it is. Saying that the reason that they don't wash the whole body is that it's not like a one and done thing when you encounter Christ, but that it's a constant working mm. on and you're constantly going to be dirtied so that you, I, again, this pushes it too far, but I kind of loved it. <laughs> so I wanted to well, tell you about it. Well, just as you're, you know, like you said, one who is bathed does not need to be washed, but just the feet because your feet are constantly getting exactly. dirty, right? So he's Ex- drawing on that, that, uh, that aspect of the physical reality of the biblical text. Yeah, to make a exactly. Point. But, and I like, but I, what I liked was, be, and I think I liked it in terms of the modern day concept of, Oh, you're, uh, you're a new creation and therefore you're never going to sin again. You're kind of the reborn <laughs> rebirth kind of stuff. And Calvin is saying, no, this is a constant work in your mm-hmm. life and you constantly uh, need to be cleansed of your sins. And, yeah. um, so I just thought that was an interesting piece here. Um, yeah, we're, I, the way I say it is that we're, you know, Paul uses the language of um, 
he uses the language of, of uh, justification and sanctification and glorification that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And, I, you know, mm-hmm. the way I say it is we're constantly in the process of being conformed exactly. to the image of Christ. And exactly. that's, a, that's a work that won't be done until we stand face to face with him. And, 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 of course, he goes on about this idea of, 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 of Christ, right? So he goes um, that Christ um, did this as an example for us. Not as a not as a sacrament that mm-hmm. we should that should be doing, but um, but rather as as an example of love. We are to imitate, but not necessarily this exact act mm-hmm. of Christ. Um, well, so, I'm sure he was familiar with some of the debates in the fathers about about whether or not there was sacramental. Significance yeah, absolutely, in this. A- yeah. A- absolutely. And he he would say no, and he actually criticizes the Roman Catholic tradition of washing feet again as one of those practices that was. It was more about show than it was about true, um, true obedience to God and true um, humility. Um, and then finally, and I'll end this, that the sovereignty of God comes out in here, that Christ and God are glorified in the death on the cross, and it reflects that God's love is for all and that invites all of God's creation to live in the glory of God. So again, all of God's creation, he goes back to this kind of wholeness. Um, mm-hmm. There are there are these little little threads of universalism in Calvin mm-hmm. that people don't, which is really, really I says it mad, but really hard for people to to know are there to fathom. I yeah. mean, because Christ, because Calvin is the predestination exactly, and reprobation guy. Exactly. You know, you're either chosen or you're or you're condemned. Exactly. But the threads are in mm-hmm. are in his writing. Yeah. Um, Christ died to glorify the Father, and although it was a shameful bath, death, his obedience to God would ultimately result in his honor. Um, God, Christ, in dying on the cross, made it so that God can glorify us. Mm. Yeah. So there. What struck me about this was just how much theology, deep theological points are were embedded in this in this chapter. Well, and again, and, I think about you know when I think about that whole theme of glory in John's Gospel, Jesus glorifies God by by doing what he sees God doing and saying what he hears God saying, and you know he says we glorify God as we carry out. Yes. You know, yes. our work of of like um, being connected to the vine and bearing fruit in mm-hmm. discipleship, as we fulfill this example of love, we are glorifying God. And and you know, to use the language again of Paul, Paul will say, "We're justified, we're sanctified, we're glorified." The glorification, you know, that's a word that maybe has some strange implications for us in our day and time. But the the point of that is that we're conformed to the image of Christ, which mm-hmm. is the image of God, right? And, right. And in the end, and that's that's the glorification that, right. that 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 I think the New Testament speaks about in in our case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do too. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and um, as we were talking in the break, it seems like the really the the focal point of of this passage is that this command to love is is defined by Jesus' humble service, uh, and so we thought we'd talk about what it looks like uh, for us in in this day and time to to try to follow this example of humble service. And I think it's you know it's an interesting question because. Um, humility is something that we 
kind of aspire to as followers. And yet at the same time, what does that really mean? Because I think it's natural for us to seek things like recognition in what we do. We want people to see what we're doing. That's kind of human nature. Certainly. And, um, um, and even even when you when you do something out of the fullness of your heart, and then somebody else comes in and says, "Well, I'm going to go do this for somebody," and you just want to say, "I already did this. I already did it." I, you aren't recognizing my humility and and doing this. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so right. I mean, I find this to be. I mean, this is a this is a, a bit really of attention. hard. This is a. It's, it's much harder to follow than we think. How do you draw attention to your your own humble service without? you know kind of basically invalidating the humility part of it (laughs) exactly exactly i mean and it kind of reminds me of doing these things and and really never ever receiving recognition Mm -hmm. for it and um that's a really interesting concept as human beings, really, when you put it to the test to think about what does that mean because i know many i mean i had um, I know a woman who's a, an amazing chaplain. I mean, she gives and gives and gives and gives. and But she is recognized. Mm. She's always recognized at some point. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, um, uh, I, I wonder how many people out there do really give, but still want that recognition mm-hmm. on their shoulder. I mean, as pastors, we know really well, we have these wonderful people in our congregation but you really need to send them a little note of yeah, thanks. You recognize yeah, them. Yeah, you always yeah. recognize them. So yeah. can this pureness of humility exist with, within the context of not being recognized for it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the challenge of, of really embracing humble service is, is you do what you know to be right because it is right. You do, you know, you follow this example of humble service because it is what it means to follow Christ, um, <laughs> even when um, you know you may get no credit for it at all, and even when people may fault you for other things you're doing, and you know they don't see that you are actually because ser- a lot of this is behind the scenes, right? right? A lot of what we do in in service to others is not public. Right. And, and, um, I, you know, I, I wrestle with this a little bit in that, in that, you know, I make a report to my session on my monthly activities. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of a, again, it's kind of a catch 22. And and there are a lot of things, frankly, there are a lot of things that I don't report. Exactly. You know, because, you know, I, I report pastoral contacts, for example, but, um, I make a lot of pastoral contacts just in the course of doing my job that I don't record and I record. don't, I don't report anywhere. And yet at the same time as pastors, we kind of have to report what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just, it's just a very, it's, it's really interesting, um, tension, I think, mm-hmm. um, yes. uh, about humble service and, um, um, you know, I, 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 I admire, I, I admire those that do and can without ever receiving, you know, um, Mm -hmm. a note about it. And, and we know those people and, and, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure a lot of people listening are, are those people, but, um, it's, it's, um, 
I, I think for many people, that's part of our humanity is wanting that recognition, I guess. Well, it makes a difference. I mean, you know, I think about, I think about cards I've gotten during Pastor Appreciation Month or, or for my birthday or, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. on Christmas or something. And, well, I, I mean, um, I don't know that we've talked much about it, but I, I had a bout with long COVID. And I'm, I'm, I mean, started at the beginning of January and we're coming to the beginning of May. And I'm just now beginning to get back into my 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 sort of um the stamina that I had before and uh, you know I got a card from someone in the church it was anonymous um talking about you know you've taken such good care of us now we're gonna now we're here to take care of you and you know it was it meant a lot to me mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I needed that yeah because yeah. I was I was struggling right and and I you know and so for me I found it's been it's been sort of, um, you know, I, I don't seek it, but um, it does come occasionally, and I guess I'm fortunate in that. I know that not every, not every person who's serving, trying to serve humbly, right. has a situation right, where right. they get that kind of recognition. But I, I do get it right. from time to right. time from people in my congregation, and um, it, it does help. I, you're right. I mean, you know, because yeah. when you, when you, when you give of yourself and you give of yourself, it leaves you exhausted and both of both right. physically right. and emotionally and spiritually. And, um, you know, in my case, you know, perhaps there are a lot of folks out there who serve in a, in some capacity, they have a spouse who is there to, right. to support right. them and to encourage them or, or, f- you know, hopefully a best friend, you know, I, I, I don't have a spouse. I live alone. And so, um, I have, to, I mean, to me, I think about, you know, the statement that we were talking about with Jesus and his confidence in God, you know, that, um, that's what was, what sustained him. And, and, uh, you know, I think to some extent we have to almost, you know, <laughs> know that the father, you know, that, that we're in, in, in the father's hands and the father has all things in his hands and the, we're seeking to glorify God in everything that we do and that, um, you know, God is going to recognize God is the, God is the one who recognizes what we do ultimately. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully what we do is in his service and that he's able to use that for his glory. And that is, that is the, I guess that is the goal. Yeah. 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 I am thinking about just imitation of Christ kinds of kinds of things mm-hmm. and and it, it is really interesting and it kind of reminds me that we can never be Christ who could who did mm-hmm. do all these things without the right with with, with betrayal and everyone right. deserting him and wow I mean in a way it reminds me of how of just how far apart we are from that mm-hmm. even 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 when we try to live into our faith and and perform in that way and and it's kind of awesome when you think about it um and um and yet humbling in a way to think geez jesus did all of this with no recognition um mm-hmm. and how um um and how our humanity really limits us in some ways yeah and well and at the same time i think i think our human experience with this might help us to understand his human experience of it's it. It's true. You know, that's that true. He was he was troubled in his spirit, right? Right. I mean, surely it had to grieve him that that Judas did what he did. Oh my uh, gosh! Surely it grieved oh. him that Peter did what he did. Absolutely. You know, and and um, 
you know the 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 you know if he if he we we believe he was fully human and if he was fully human then you know the toll of being rejected and um you know beaten and mocked and and all of that you know not just the emotional toll of the cross but the emotional toll of all of it you know i think he would have felt all of that and so i you yeah, know i yeah, take true. comfort in that in that in that um and oh, I, I, think, actually, I do too. I definitely take comfort in it. Yeah. I actually connect this with a passage in Isaiah 53. I um, And I use the old translation on this because the newer translations tend to do it differently. But the older translations say, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Um, newer translations connect it with the d- diseases and illnesses. But, um, you know, um, his human experience obviously far goes beyond what we experience. Right. And, right, right. and it comforts me to know that whatever cost uh, I have to pay, uh, whatever it costs me, you know, to try to follow Jesus right. in this in this command of loving others the way He has loved us, um, Jesus understands it. He knows it, and and that's an encouragement to me as well. And not only that, you know, God has all things in His hands, and He has my life in His hands, but also that. You know, Jesus. Jesus has been through this and much more. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully that gives some yeah. food for thought uh, for for uh, your thoughts about this passage, and um, uh, we hope that uh, our our podcast has been helpful to you today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.